0: This podcast is produced by Secure World Foundation, an endowed private operating foundation that promotes cooperative solutions for space sustainability and the peaceful uses of outer space. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial license. For more information, please visit swfound.org. Well, everyone, thank you for coming uh, on
1: this not too hot day. Uh, my name is Victoria Sampson. I'm the Washington Office Director of the Secure World Foundation. I will immediately turn the podium over to Ben Bezi walker who will talk a little bit about the event that we hosted in May in China and discuss his takeaways and introduce the rest of the panelists. Ben?
2: Thank you, Victoria, and thank you for coming. We're just quickly waiting on uh, Alana Krelakowski, but uh, while, we're, while we're waiting, um, I'd like to introduce Dr. Jeffrey Lewis um, of the Monterey Institute. Um, he'll be giving some context today on kind of the, the greater Asian context and some of the debates we've been having. Um, Alana Krelakowski, who will be with us presently, um, who obviously, Alana, who many of you know, um, is doing her PhD on US-China issues, um, and we'll be discussing some of the China policy context um, and I'm going to lay out some of the work the Secure World Foundation has been doing um, in this area, um, and discuss a little bit about some of the meetings we've been having um, between kind of US and Chinese academics and policymakers, um, and to discuss some of the recommendations and kind of thinking that we've seen coming out of that, and how that may form the continued direction of uh, US policy on China, and <coughs> whether engagement should we have engagement, and if so, what kind of engagement um, does that look like. No, 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 no. Thank you. Um, first of all, uh, in May this year, uh, Secure World Foundation, along with the China Academy of Sciences, put together a workshop looking at space policy and laws in, in the Asia context. Um, we had attendance from uh, China, both government and uh, academic, um, the uh, Indian uh, representations, again, government and academic, uh, Japan. Um, and uh, we had some input from the Koreans who unfortunately weren't able to make it. Um, we put together this event uh, in the feeling that in the Asia region the building of space policies in the national context and in the regional context is essential. And the reason we put together this event today is that we feel that the Asia region is one of the regions of the world where understanding how those policies are being built and how that plays into the greater dialectic of multilateralism in space um, and how we, as the United States and or established based nations, continue to engage with countries such as China, India um, over the, the coming years is something that's really essential and very much part of a dialectic that should be happening um, as we continue to define uh, US um, engagement in the multilateral sphere. In terms of some of the key recommendations that, that we felt came out of the workshop, first, um, This was an environment that we felt we hadn't really seen before. Um, By engaging with technical experts in various of these countries, we had a dialogue which was an awful lot more open and an awful lot more transparent um, than perhaps other dialogues we'd seen in the past. Um, One of the things that I think struck us the most um, was the level of... Um, willingness to discuss policy, to discuss process. Um, from the Chinese perspective, I think certainly h- us here in Washington, and also many of the European capitals, we see China as being nefariously in- untransparent. Um, and what really came out of this meeting was that the Chinese understand the American system as little as we understand the Chinese system, um, but not necessarily um, for reasons of, of trying to be trying to obfuscate the question. Um, One of the major aspects um, of our workshop was looking at how the Chinese are currently building their policy process on space. Um, Their discussion of the natural space law, which has been put forward um, into the People's Congress, um, and working out how all of the different ministries and how all of the different stakeholders within the Chinese uh, environment are continuing um, to try and move forward the space question. Um going to talk a little bit more about some of the hurdles and some of the, the way that the, China, China, the current China structure um, sees space policy and how that fits into the greater dialectic of science technology policy for China, um, which uh, she'll cover, cover a bit more. Um, I think what we really also felt was Something that Washington is very strong on is that we have a strong pace based policy community, and many of the people in this room give consistent input um, to government policy processes. What we're really seeing, I think, in India and China is, is that this community doesn't exist. Um, and building, bu- helping supporting those communities as they start to emerge um, out of either other science and technology issues or, or as a new community completely is an essential part of effective foreign policy. Um, of any of the major, emerging space, uh, major space states. Um, additionally, one of the things that we found is that these communities, as they started to come together, are not at all internationally connected. Um, connecting them with major space policy actors in Europe um, and in, in the United States, we saw as one of the key uh, next steps for creating a potential policy check um, on policymakers and diplomats in the space arena, especially in the Chinese context. Um, the policy and diplomatic community are not experienced on space issues. Um, understanding the high level of technical complexity, plus the large amounts of historical background that come with the space arena, is something that we felt was somewhat lacking. Um, and we felt that a lot of the input that the European and American participants gave to this particular meeting was of great value to our Chinese colleagues, and that's something that we hope to continue to work towards. One of the other key recommendations that came out of our workshop um, was the issue of space science cooperation. This was perhaps seen as the most likely area of where US-China or European-China engagement could happen in the long term. Um, This very much mirrors some of the conversations uh, that happened at the recent US-China Economic and Security Commission's hearing on space. Um, understanding how space science can potentially be a tool for moving forward um, in, the, in the bilateral environment. Um, it was seen by many of the participants, especially, especially India and China, that this was a key first step in building transparency and building confidence um, and that in, the importance of separating that out from other major issues more related to the security domains and the ITAR domain um, was really essential. I think what we found in this in this workshop was there is huge amounts of value in creating safe spaces um, it's the Business Secure World Foundation and I think of, of all the attendance at our workshop there needs to be cooperation with China um, from the multilateral context, um, engaging emerging space states and understanding how we shape their policies and shape their behaviour in the future um, when Bhutan gets its satellites, when uh, Nepal is building its next programme we need to create a coalition in the international community of what transparency and confidence means um, and what is sustainable and safe directions um, on building building space activities and building, building space policies. Um, and now is the time in many of these capitals uh, to be having that kind of input. Um, in the complex policy environments of New Delhi, Washington and Beijing, and many others, there's a need to continue to develop these kind of channels um, and understand how the mechanisms of natural space policies are being generated, what they mean and how they can be applied and further explored. Um, we hope to be able to continue these kind of dialogues um, over the next few years um, and perhaps to give some context uh, to that national and regional Uh, understanding Alana is going to talk a little bit about specifically the China policy context and what kind of hurdles we may see in the bilateral and multilateral context in engaging with them Uh,
3: Thanks very much uh, and thanks to the CMO Foundation for, for having me here today um, I think uh, the in- initiative that, that Ben has described is uh, really extremely important. And uh, my own research certainly suggests the value of uh, conducting this type of workshop and follow-on activities and as we're continuing in the vein that, that Ben has described. I'm going to talk uh, today about um, obstacles, difficulties, and frustrations uh, that outsiders face when they try to understand uh, the Chinese, China's conduct in space, um, how China finds its goals in space, and pursues them. Um, More generally, I'm going to talk about the obstacles to effective communication and dialogue between the US space policy making community and the Chinese space policy making community, um, such as it is. Um, There are basically three main things I'll talk about. The first is the familiar lack of transparency that uh, uh, we often note. The second thing I'll discuss is how the Chinese policy making environment is very complex and how it's rapidly changing, and the obstacles that that poses to communication and dialogue um, then I'll talk more generally about how Chinese policymakers and leaders see the space sector in the context of the country's broader scientific and technological modernization, and how space can be setting scientific and, and technology policymaking uh, more generally in China, or science and technology policymaking more generally. Um, I'll also note um, the different ways in which Chinese space specialists or space policymakers or policy elites think about space as such. Space is a place to act in, and space is a place to, to be governed. And finally, I'll end with a few remarks on the Chinese space policy community um, that's emerging and the opportunities that it presents to, to outsiders. Um, we often um, hear, first of course, that the Chinese space uh, establishment, the Chinese space sector is not transparent, is extremely opaque, and it's, of course, true that there are very, very tight restrictions on the type of information that's made available about the Chinese space program, uh, not only to international observers, but to the Chinese public uh, itself. Um, in fact, though, the, the situation is really, really changing. Um, the amount of information that's available about the Chinese program has really increased over the past three years. Um, that's observable in you know, phenomenal growth in academic publications, trade publications, official statements, official speeches, Chinese participation in international conferences and presentations, increasingly active participation in those those conferences. So there's more and more information available um, today about the Chinese space program. And the challenge today really is not um, the lack of information, it's the volume of information, working through it, um, assessing the quality and the credibility of different sources, and (coughs) translation. Because a lot of it is is in Chinese, uh, which is inconvenient. Um, and the, the translation that, that's needed is not only from Chinese language to the English language, um, but also a certain kind of interpretation that you could call a second type of translation, which is the translation from the, the Chinese perspective, the Chinese outlook, uh, into something that we understand more readily. Um, and this is something that's a little amorphous and difficult to describe, but anyone who uh, spends a long time with Chinese sources or or speaking with Chinese space sector participants, eventually bumps up against this. If you want to have a discussion that goes beyond the superficial and the familiar, you eventually must contend with the fact that Chinese space specialists or space sector professionals they see a different world than we do. Um, I don't mean that in, in any deep fundamental sense, but there are. There are important differences in how the task of space policy making is understood, how the problems are defined, and how they're approached. And I'll talk a little bit more um, about that uh, briefly. Um, Maybe the biggest concrete problem or or challenge to improving communication between the U.S. space policy making community and and the Chinese space policy community is that the Chinese policy making environment is very complex and it's changing very, very rapidly. Um, literally the Chinese space sector is undergoing very deep and rapid institutional and organizational change, I would say in every major area and at every level. And that's true of both the civil and the military aspects of China space activities. It's true across government, the military, and industry. Um, if you think of the Chinese space sector as having sort of roughly three pillars or three types of actors in it, the government, the military, and industry, um, and those distinctions are artificial, but they're, they're sort of useful. Um, on the government side, there, there's been a cycle of, of reforms and changes, but the, the most recent ones were in 2008. And the effects of those reforms are not yet fully understood. Those changes are, are probably coming to an end now. Um, but the sector's been in flux uh, since 2008. Um, um, those changes led primarily to the effective demotion of the China National Space Agency, which was the agency that was in charge of representing China to China's space program to the outside world. Um, the military side of the space program is also undergoing similarly due to changes. We can discuss about them. Uh, we can discuss them in the Q and A. They have primarily to do with the evolving relationship between different military organs and the defense industry, as well as other things. And finally, in the sort of industry pillar or aspect of the Chinese space sector, um, there are very, very deep and rapid reforms that have been implemented um, for well over a decade and even even long before that, um, to try and modernize the Chinese defense industry. And those are constant and ongoing. Um, There are two major industrial players in the Chinese space sector that many of you know, uh, Kask and Kasich, uh, or what they're abbreviated to, as recently as 13 or 14 years ago, those two companies, or those kaskin Kasich or their, their, their predecessors, were basically government ministries. They were run you know, internally like bureaucratic or administrative animals. And today they look a lot more like modern uh, companies, like modern Western defense contractors in terms of their internal governance and their structure. So they've evolved very quickly as well and many note that they're more and more influential within the Chinese space sector. They have a louder and louder voice in defining um, essentially what China can hope for in space and leave perhaps a greater imprint on how China's leaders see um, the country's interest in space, specific space capabilities. So all of these rapid changes um, introduce a kind of paralysis that really hinders cooperation. Um, people are reluctant to express themselves at the you know, level of individuals when they don't know what will be true two weeks from now. They don't know who will be in charge um, shortly when things are changing so quickly. At the institutional level, there's also a reluctance to come out with any, any concrete statements or any more um, official documents because everything is changing. China's um, also due framing space policy, probably because um, a lot has changed since the last one was issued in, in 2006. The program's evolved a great deal. And China is also in the process of working a new comprehensive national space law through its legislative process. So that will also um, you know, clarify a few roles and responsibilities within the sector. So that's the first set of problems uh, with trying to effectively communicate or engage in dialogue with, uh, with members of the Chinese uh, space policy community as it is. Um, I'll talk quickly about how you can un- how will these changes figure into a, a broader national agenda for technological modernization? Chinese leaders and policymakers think differently about science and technology than they used to, and they think differently from the way most Americans do. Um, if you read Chinese leaders' statements carefully, you may come away with the impression that scientific and technological modernization of the country is literally the most pressing task before them. Um, the state of China's s development is the primary obstacle holding China back from um, taking its economic development to the next level, moving into new high-tech export sectors, for example. It's the the greatest obstacle um, to the country's effective national defense. It's modernization is what's needed to equip the military in order to, to effectively um, perform its, its responsibilities. Um and Chinese leaders and policymakers take a very systemic view of science and technology and national scientific, technical, and industrial capacity. Uh, they see a need to create a base, a, res- a national reservoir of people and facilities and organizations that are able to achieve or, or produce advanced technological products. Um, and that—that's the reasoning that they bring to all this. And the. Has become extremely important in Chinese sort of political discourse to emphasize scientific and technological modernization. They see S&T, building S&T capacity, not only as really an element of comprehensive national power, uh, but as the most important element of comprehensive national power. Scientific and technical, uh, technical or technological advantage is what determines the rise and fall of nations in this worldview. It's scientific and the technical changes is what drives world politics in a sense. So the, the emphasis that they place on a whole range of S&P sectors is, is very, very important. And China is investing very broadly in everything from nanotechnology to green energy to space and aviation and a whole range of high-tech sectors. Um, a big part of this investment is driven by a, a fear of technological surprise. You know, China doesn't want to be excluded from any new technological developments. So a lot of it is quite reactive um, in that sense. And it's also very difficult to assess how Chinese leaders define their interest in new technologies when they take this very broad um, perspective. But all of this is important for space policy dialogue because it it helps understand why, for example, um, the Chinese side reacts with such hostility and resentment towards US export controls and other restrictions. They're not only you know the product or sort of a response to 1989 and a, and a few other developments to the Chinese side they're really um, a strategy for suffocating China's um, national scientific and technological development and its other goals. Um, so understanding a little bit of, of how, how leaders view, science and technology, at large, helps appreciate um, how they view, or how, how space figures into a broader national agenda. And finally, I'll talk a little bit about um, how Chinese policy elites uh, see the space environment and how they really approach space policy as, as, a, as an area of policy management. They have a slightly different understanding of space as, as a domain of action or as a, a place to govern. Um, I think it's fair to say that the, the main sort of thrust of Chinese thinking about space policy over the decades has not really been in terms of addressing a domain or, or even like a sector per se or an environment. But they viewed space and space development primarily as a series of technology development goals and programs. Um, there, there is, this, is, this is a sort of general direction um, for how a lot of space policy making has been approached. Um, ever since Deng Xiaoping, Chinese space policymakers or policymakers in general have studied what other countries do, what more advanced countries and more developed countries do. Um, in space, they've done that to determine what space capabilities they should pursue. And they've made a list of them. And then they've created uh, a series of large-scale programs to achieve those space capabilities. And that's been the general orientation or sort of underlying kind of mental schema with which space policymaking has been um, approached. That means it's often derivative of what other countries have been done. To a certain extent, it's reactive, um, and it's 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 track what other countries have done. That may be changing now because as China's capabilities are improving, um, its ambitions may also change, and China may want to pursue some first um, and do something new. Um, but the the result of this general focus is that if you want to get beyond sort of discussions where you just repeat familiar messages about protecting the space environment or, or space sustainability and try to really understand uh, what preoccupies space policymakers in China. What do they spend their time worrying about? Uh, you realize that the, the main thrust is sort of a little out of step with these discussions of sustainability because the focus has not been on space as an environment per se. That's not been the intellectual problem that preoccupies them um, in in the same way that that I think we've come to take as given here in the U.S. The final thing I will talk about, the third final thing, is the emerging Chinese uh, space policy community. Um, Right now in China, there are sort of two types of people who express views about space or who have ideas about space. Uh, One is a group of you know, a, a very large community of technical uh, personnel, many of whom uh, you know, just work in the sector on a very specific project and generally don't have um, a policy role or regularly expressed policy views. The other set of people um, are often trained in the social sciences and tend to um, express themselves primarily in terms of, sort of international relations or talk about China's international strategy. And they, they also, they don't have a technical background, but they have a, a policy focus. And these, these two, very few individuals bridge these two <coughs> worlds in the, the Chinese space community. There's a technical world and a sort of policy world. But this community that, that exists, for example, here in Washington, D.C., of people who really move between those two worlds doesn't quite exist in China in the same way yet. Um, but that is changing. Um, space is obviously is very highly technical policy-making area. Um, Leaders know that they have to rely on on the input of specialists, especially scientific and technical personnel who who work in the sector, um, scientists and engineers. Um, So there is is a a recognition today in China that there's a need for a more systematic and a more institutionalized process for bringing expert advice to uh, political decision makers. And a community of space experts who's able to play this policy role is emerging. we see sort of small signs of it. Um, for now, this community is still very nationally focused. Um, it doesn't have a lot of exposure to the international community or to international ideas and perspectives, except for maybe reading um, what comes in from abroad. But it's clear that it has a pretty uncertain grasp of evolving space policy trends in the, in- in the international environment, probably of U.S. space policy and U.S. interests. US motivations in space. At the same time as this community is sort of emerging and coalescing, the Chinese space program is also entering a phase during which the demand for this particular kind of expertise is likely to grow. Um, major space policy decisions will present themselves in the coming years for the, for the central leadership. For example, um, political leaders will have to decide whether and how China should go to the moon and whether it should do so alone. Um, so, you can expect over the coming years that the impact of this particular community to grow the impact on policy outcomes. So, there's a unique sort of moment of opportunity to try and engage um, this community of space policy uh, professionals, this emerging community. And because the change, the, the the system in China is changing so rapidly, there's no rigidity. Um, there's really an opportunity to engage different players and um, expose them to different ideas and maybe even have some kind of impact on the direction that the Chinese program takes. Um, but things are evolving very quickly in China, so the opportunity to really build those relationships and have them uh, become meaningful uh, may be a fleeting one. Um, so I mean it might be that sort of developing long term relationships with these space professionals through whatever means are available, whether it's programs like what Ben described or any other um, form of, of engagement. I think perhaps the most effective kind would be technical cooperation on an actual technical project um, is likely to, to really serve the cause of, of bridging these gaps in understanding that um, that Ben has described. Um, at the very least, introducing additional channels of, of communication into the bilateral relationship, uh, the China-U.S. relationship in space. Um, and
4: on that, um, I'll hand it over to Great. Well, thank you. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I thank Ben and Victoria for inviting me. Uh, I I direct a project at the Monterey Institute on uh, mostly involving nuclear weapons issues, but for a long time I worked on space issues, and so I've spent a lot of time on space and I've spent a lot of time on organizing track one and a half meetings with uh, Chinese on on nuclear issues. Trust me if you think space is sensitive, nuclear weapons more sensitive. Uh, And so I wanted my remarks to focus today on this question of why it seems to be so hard for us uh, to sustain effective dialogues with our Chinese participants. Uh, let alone actually engage in policy cooperation. Um, and
0: I'll, I'll wind
4: my way around that. But I want to start by sort of subtly um, undermining Ben's guidance to me, which is that he asked me to talk about uh, the context in which this uh, this discussion is taking place. And left a little bit of ambiguity about what the word context means, because normally, Normally, when we say context, we mean the regional context. We mean the geopolitical context. We mean, you know, why is it that the Chinese are doing this, and what does that mean for our, for our power? Um, but I don't I don't tend to like geopolitical explanations very much, and and the reason for that is is the reason that I think Alana outlined very effectively, which is. To a first approximation, most geopolitical explanations for why the Chinese do the funny things they do tend to be American explanations for Chinese actions. Um, And in my experience, the Chinese explanations for them are much more weird and interesting. um, And they bear almost no relationship to the story we tell. And I I can't emphasize enough how much that second act of interpretation that Alana mentioned Uh, matters and how much of a gulf there is. Along with a colleague, Gregory Gulaki, we wrote a a short monograph for the American (coughs) Academy of Arts and Sciences uh, called "The Place for One's Map that just simply tried to take Chinese histories of their space program uh, and describe the story that they tell about what they thought they were doing and why they thought they were doing it and what they thought their important achievements were and their important important battles. Uh, And this is not an advertisement for the monograph as much as it is just a statement of uh, what you might call methodological solidarity uh, with the previous two talks, of trying to actually go out and find out from the Chinese how it is um, that they look at the world. Uh, And I should note that that's not the same thing as saying that the way they look at the world is correct, but I think that if you you want to build a sustainable basis for cooperation, the place to start is acknowledging that uh, other people have their own myths and stories and motives Um, And if you don't respect those, you're probably not going to get very far. So knowing that I I think that that gap um, is the most important barrier to effective dialogue and cooperation, let me try to talk about where I think the sources of that problem are or or, or how they manifest themselves. the place I want to say, start by saying is I don't think the problem is transparency. It's very easy for us to sit in Washington and say that the Chinese aren't transparent, but I would say one time out of ten that someone says that, there really is something specific they would like to know that is important that the Chinese won't tell them. I think the other nine times out of ten it's a generic sense of frustration or a generic kind of way of expressing that there's something that maybe you don't even know what it is, but you don't know it and you want to know it. Uh, But if you go to China, there are people who do want to tell you, right? They want to tell you their stories. One of the most interesting things about the histories that we use uh, for our book is that there are all of these little internecine battles about who deserves credit for what and whose mentor was really responsible for things that Chinese are perfectly happy to litigate in front of you. Um, But of course, there are two problems. And the first is that most of those people don't speak English. My Chinese is terrible, so you know I, I don't, I can't throw stones at people. But it's a real challenge, right? The people who are really enmeshed in these debates uh, don't tend to be people with excellent English skills. Um, and then, in this funny way, they don't really speak Chinese either, because right? they're technical. Um, their capacity to express themselves in a way uh, that Bears any relationship to what a normal human being would think of as sort of important questions is, is, is a little bit strained. Um, you know, I, I often laugh that uh, one of the explanations for why the Chinese were willing to enroll the debris they created uh, in their ASAP test uh, is that the report up to them, to the leadership, had been not focusing on this being the biggest man made debris incident in history. Um, what was a sort of very narrow technical analysis on the additional statistical risk to any particular space object. And as I was explaining this kind of very, I think misleading, but technical view of the problem, an American engineer in the front of the room piped up and said, but they're right. And I thought, well that's an engineer talking, right? And I I think to some degree uh, that is true. So we have this I think that is not transparency but it's the thing that then hinted at and, and Alana mentioned as well uh, which is it's very hard to find the right community of people to talk to uh, and I think all of us who go to China and try to set these dialogues up uh, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone else um, You know, it, we really struggle to get past the usual suspects the people who we see at every meeting some of whom by the way are really good but some of whom are not um, and none of whom are experts on everything Uh, And so we really do have, I think, this incredibly important challenge of finding a way to get at people uh, who actually have something to say. And, you know, there aren't that many in China, because I think, as Alana pointed out, there is a technical community, and there are people who do policy, but there's no analog to the people in this room in China. There isn't... They don't have a panel like this, where somebody who organizes track one and a half with the United States comes up here and talks about the challenges of doing that and you know, the assemblage of people who maybe work in industry but maybe will go into policy and then maybe after that will sit at the think tank. And that, just, that, that doesn't exist. And, and so one of the reasons I think to try to engage in these dialogues uh, is to try to build that community, right? And, and to try to build that community in a way that's sustainable. Uh, and I know that, at least in the past, we've tried to engage people in these discussions. And my favorite example is uh, there's one Chinese guy who's just excellent, does wonderful technical work, uh, went to uh, Beihang, uh, you know, premier technical university, did all kinds of debris uh, calculations, got really interested in the policy. Uh, and he's at MIT now. So, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't sit anymore in there In in their debate or their discussion. And then the final thing I I wanted to close by noting is I don't think we can exaggerate the degree to which it is important how different um, the two sides view things. And Alana's work is really excellent, I think, because of two of these little subtleties that it really brings forward that I just want to put on the table for our discussion. The first is that, in my experience, just intuitively, because of the national narrative they tell, Chinese look at their technological prowess and its implications fundamentally differently than we do. You know, if you walk up to a Chinese person and you say, the United States doesn't want to cooperate with China because it's worried about the implications of technology transfer, their immediate assumption will be that if China goes out and does something and demonstrates its technical prowess, that that will resolve our concern, right? That we will decide that they are an equal and therefore are a perfectly appropriate partner for all kinds of technical exchange. Uh, but it's exactly the opposite way we look at it, right? When they go and do something, we think, oh my god, the Chinese are catching up, we better clamp down. I mean, they just because they have this narrative of national development and, and, and have internalized, I think, to a great degree, all of these criticisms, there is just a default assumption on the part of Chinese policymakers. Uh, that rather than scaring people, strength will somehow gain them admission to the club. Right? And that's why we titled the monograph, by the way, a place for one's math. It's the metaphor they pick. Right? It's, it's the equivalent of a seat at the table. Right? They, don't, they don't see the problem as them being too strong. They, they think the problem is that they are too weak and that therefore you know, aren't invited to the club. And the second thing, um, which you know, I will admit is probably the one place where I think their national narrative maybe is a little more accurate than at least ours has been in recent years, which is they don't immediately assume that space is a default military arena. Right? Military stuff happens in space, uh, and they are certainly aware of the military benefits of space, but for them, I think space fits in their development, their, their narrative of development and technological achievement. And so they look at the civil and the commercial and the military benefits of space as being all a part of the good stuff that China's going to get. Right? And for reasons that I have never fully understood, I, I think in the United States, we have tended to um, look at space differently. Right? We've tended, I think, to see space first as a military arena and then try to imagine ways in which we can create space for civil uh, or commercial activities. Um, and I think that difference is important. And you see that, I think the place you really see that difference is in things like uh, civil aircraft, right? We think of civil aircraft as being just aircraft. And yeah, you can use aircraft for military missions, but we're also perfectly happy to sell uh, passenger liners and even production facilities to the Chinese, you know, provided there are some end-user uh, arrangements. But we're much more reluctant on space. And that's a, I think that's a dichotomy that we've created that um, they don't necessarily agree with. And so you will often see, I think, particularly in these arguments about export controls, this kind of foundational assumption uh, really driving these two conversations that seem to happen uh, completely separately. Uh, so what should we do about that? Well, my, my, I mean, my final thought is, you know, other than insisting that foundations continue to give me money to travel to Beijing, and talk futilely to my Chinese colleagues, and then go find the nicest restaurant in town, um, just not a bad life I think one, one thing that we have started to do in the track one and a half dialogue at least some of us and, and which I think is probably important in getting at these distinctions is, is maybe to move past the point where we're just talking and try to do things together and I don't think we're at the point where we're going to do actual policy cooperation but at least in the non-governmental community um, things like joint threat assessments, glossaries uh, basically exercises that force you to actually make joint decisions or at minimum specify the places where you just simply cannot agree, uh, I think are probably going to be even more uh, fruitful moving forward. Um, but that's just a suspicion, uh, and I certainly haven't even put it into action in my own efforts, which goes to show you what hypocrite I am. Um, but I think that's the way forward, or at least that's what I, I would like to talk a little bit about in our questions and answers. Thank
1: you. Thank you all. Um, As always, I'd like to take the power of the chair to ask the first question. Uh, Everyone kind of touched on this a little bit in your um, speeches, and I'm sure I can pretty much guess what you're going to say, but I'm curious to hear, anyways. there's discussion about the Chinese explanation for their activities and their policies and their interests. I'm wondering if they recognize there's a discrepancy between how they see things and how the United States sees things. I'd also be curious to know if it goes the other way. For example, are there U.S. activities that we think are perfectly benign but the Chinese are very nervous about?
2: I think this comes very much back to Jeffrey and Alana's point about I'd like to your point, Jeffrey, about kind of st- story and history and where you see your story from, two people telling the same story in very different ways. I think what we've seen in our, in our work in the international community, specifically in, in the UN context, has been um, a realisation by China that how it thinks about things is not necessarily how the rest of the world thinks about things. And I think that this is very symptomatic of the fact that we are at that kind of edge time where a lot of the space policy community and a lot of the general security community in China is starting to get exposure to how others think. Um, I think one of the problems that we have here in the US um, is is that we break issues down to a very small level. In China, and in a lot of emerging space states, um, there's one guy or 10 guys or 20 guys or one department that builds in a holistic view of security policy or or development in general. and here in the United States, we have hundreds of people working on very specific issues. Um, and I think when we start talking about space in the China context, it is important to remember it is not only the security issue of Taiwan, plus the, what we did with the Dalai Lama, plus, 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 plus. And I think that high-level holistic overview is a key part that we miss in Washington of how that story and how that dialectic is built in China. Um, I would also agree with, with what Alana said, is that we and, and Jeffrey, that we're dealing with a large number of engineers. Um, it's something that I've heard a lot in my degree in Washington, is if only the lawyers and the politicians just got out of the way, we'd be able to do the space thing so much better. Um, I think that that's a stage we're at in China, and the policy community and the the diplomatic and the legal community aren't there yet. I mean, there's maybe two or three people in China that I know that are sophisticated on the international legal aspects of of what a space policy looks like and what that means. Um, In addition, I think that there's other stories that we don't tell so much in Washington Um, and probably are being told less in Beijing. Um, One of those being the relationship between New Delhi and Beijing. Um, It's very easy to talk about how all of these Actors relate to the major powers what's, right, what's Moscow and Beijing doing? What's Beijing and Washington doing? When you start talking about the regional dialectics And that's one of the reasons that we made this an Asia-focused event We think that that is a key Part of this story That needs to be told in a different way um, We recently did uh, A big event in Delhi And also the representation that, that we had at this meeting um, What's coming out of India Is, well we're not sure what Beijing's doing So we'll tell you what we're doing When we work out what Beijing's doing and what Pakistan might do. And all of these are other regional contexts which, which are really important. Um, also, just to kind of touch on another part of the story, one of the reasons that we hear about China is because China is loud and China is making waves in its region and in the international community. The Indian dialectic on this, I would say India or Victoria, you can agree or disagree. Um, I think India is a lot more, a lot less transparent than China has been on many of its base policy issues. Um, I think India could be said to have intentionally obfuscated its direction on space, whereas China has simply decided that it is a weaker um, and less um, able participant in the international community. Um, But I certainly think, think as... As both Jeffrey and Lana said, we are at that point where, because China is being wrapped into the international dialogue, with open, such as the direction of this administration on saying we believe in international cooperation, we believe in opening the Irish powers, and we believe it from a financial and from a stability and security perspective, um, we are very much at a turning point. So that was a very long answer to yeah, a short question.
1: Totally fine. Um, Jeffrey?
0: I
2: do, but do you want to also?
3: I'm, I'm short. No, you, you first. Well, that's going to be
4: a, 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 an example of where U.S. and Chinese perspectives differ. Not, not in the sort of the Chinese are freaked out. It's not an extreme difference, but I think it's, I think it's very telling. I don't know if everybody knows this. Kind of story about why the Eisenhower administration, they were, they were very, uh, they took a very sanguine attitude towards Sputnik because they appreciated the fact that it established the principle of overflight and we were planning on putting up reconnaissance satellites. And so once the Soviets did that, then we were free to overfly and, and we had very strong argument. And that's the sort of story we tell. And we say, well, that established the principle that this is okay to do. Well, now just pause for a minute and imagine you're the Chinese you't involved in this you didn't you didn't get to vote you you were asked whether the international principle that satellites can overfly your country and, and take pictures is okay and you know I think to, a, to this day to some degree they state still hate that idea you know, the Chinese in the 60s spent just shocking sums of money uh, on uh, very early um, Anti-aircraft missiles, uh, including this just insane program to try to uh, shoot down the SR seventy-one, which is on the one hand sort of silly, but on the other hand I think demonstrates uh, the neuralgia. And I, you know, to some extent, I don't. You don't see Chinese diplomacy today actively contesting uh, the principle of overflights, and you see the Chinese themselves putting off reconnaissance satellites. But I do think if you look really closely at the things that they say in, or at least used to say, when people said things in the conference on disarmament um, about space, you know, there's only a grudging acceptance of the use of space for any military purpose at all, and and I think that it's driven in part by this kind of sense that they didn't really have any say in what those rules were, and so when you imagine that just on just a simple premise like that, right, that there can be, if not disagreement, but at least just a little irritation on
5: their part. Boy, that means we try to do something tough. Thanks.
1: Um,
3: I guess I would agree with Ben that I think there's a, a recognition in China that um, there's some some sort of disconnect between um, how they've interpreted a lot of what's happened and how the rest of the world has. I mean, the the 2007, the international response to the 2007 ASAT test came as a shock to to China. Um, But I I guess it's just interesting to point out that the Chinese space community at large really studies the U.S. open source literature very, very carefully. They spend a lot of time with this material. Um, They spent a lot of time trying to study the U.S. political system and how things happen. But there are still such fundamental obstacles to actually interpreting that in the right way. You can read so much of that um, through a lens that, that casts a kind of very sinister aura upon it. Um, and Because reading isn't enough. There isn't enough interaction. I mean, there's like a vacuum cleaner approach to the open source literature uh, that comes out of the US in China, and, and it's very carefully mined and, and used. Um, And yet there are still such fundamental um, things that are difficult, I think, for Chinese observers to really appreciate and understand. Um, I think there, it's difficult to pinpoint how much disagreement there is over specific things, but I think one really basic example is the definition of what is the peaceful use of outer space, which is more or less basically what you've described. I think a lot of Chinese space policy specialists would say that intelligence collection is not a peaceful use of outer space. that, that's like that's a pretty big difference in perception, and I it's hard to assess how many people in China are, are aware of that gap. Um, another example of that is the concept of space control that is sometimes used in US space policy documents. Chinese readers take the concept of space control to more or less mean that the US will endeavor to have at all times and under all circumstances the capacity to do Almost anything it wants in space, and to control how others will do or do, you know, what others are capable of doing in space. It interprets. You know, ma- many Chinese readers or, or observers will interpret that as a, a type of space hegemony um, that is really menacing to China because it it could you know, prevent China from well compromise China's access to space, compromise its you know, ability to launch at will, or basically just exploit the benefits of space. I'm not sure that's what U.S. Uh, policymakers intended to message uh, to the international community when they chose that language. But it's, it's one of the the sort of concepts around which I think this, this gulf exists, right? And then as for U.S. actions that are perceived as threatening that we may not know or may not be conscious of, I think that increasingly in China I get the sense that this concept of Technological surprise kind of works very large, looms very large rather. Um, there's the sense that uh, there have been a number of technologies over the past few decades or centuries or I'd say, pick your timeline that have really changed the game. Uh, and have conferred some sort of extraordinary advantage upon a particular country or another player. Maybe the most recent example is the internet. So, But oftentimes, you couldn't imagine the impact or the significance of that technology when the the basic research for it, or the basic R&D for it was being, um, the preliminary R&D was being undertaken. But the the country that ended up doing that R&D benefited a great deal from it. And so China feels like it has to play. Um, And sometimes China will invest in technologies, including space technologies, not because it necessarily wants the specific (coughs) technology, but because they feel like you have to participate in the research or you might be excluded from some accidental or happenstance or or other kind of unpredictable development that comes from from it. Um, And a key example for that at least that I've heard cited by by Chinese observers is is ballistic missile defense. Like Chinese leaders listen to their physicists. So so they kind of understand that um, missile defense is uh, difficult to achieve. It's very technically challenging and maybe impossible depending on who you ask. Uh, but they, what they worry about is that in the course of developing ballistic missile defense capabilities, the U.S. may develop a whole range of other technologies and, and capabilities that, that they hadn't anticipated. And if China doesn't participate in the same kind of research, doesn't try to do the same thing, it'll be excluded from these benefits and it will once again be surprised. So it's kind of a very defensive posture towards this, this idea of techn- technological change and, and hedging one's bets. If you look at how China invests in science and technology, they invest so widely in such a, a broad range of areas. Um, in part, uh, for this reason, or at least so it seems.
1: So. Add to that, yeah. Um,
2: I think one of the one of the great um, concerns for many international actors, whether it be um, a state such as China, um, is U.S. policy messaging. Um, it's something that I find myself explaining in many countries around the world is just because Stratcom said this and OSD said that and the State Department said something else and <coughs> the White House said this and seven think tanks said different things on different days, how does one understand what a US government position is? Um, and I think in many, in many countries it depends who got the high news coverage, how did that play out, what did that mean and how did, how did all of that factor together? Now, I know many people who live inside the Beltway and who do this for a living, myself included, who often have no idea which way the wind is blowing in so many parts of the US government establishment. So I think one of the key um, concerns or certainly unnerving factors for um, a policy analyst who's based in Beijing um, is who's on the up, how's this going, how does this become any more clear to me to understand who the key players are? Because if somebody has a secretary title, an ambassador title, a general title, and there's three of them and they're all saying different things, where does that leave your policy analysis? And I think that from the Washington perspective, we just don't know who those actors are in Beijing often, but we still end up with a similar, a similar dialectic. Um, so I think that, again, building understanding of systems and building understanding of um, the fact that there are varied equities um, and the US government political process is one which is extraordinarily open. Um, things are discussed um, and the media and uh, the think tank community are used as effective vehicles for discussing and building what the eventual policy position would be. Um, is something which I think is, is of value to kind of communicate to international actors. Um, the other thing I would say is, is that I think the Chinese are aware of the fact that um, the United States... Is at least interested in cooperating and sees its role of engagement with, with other actors as being central, which I think has done much towards um, softening some of the Chinese position because it is, it is I think, a somewhat of a feeling in certain parts of Beijing that the US is recognising that China is one of the big players. Um, if we are serious about moving forward to long-term sustainability um, and more and a more enhanced security climate for United States and for our national assets we are going to have to deal with countries such as Iran, such as the Chinese military, such as all of these emerging security actors, which in many ways we have had no real ability to deal with before. Um, and whether this is in the regional context, the bilateral context or the multilateral context remains to be seen. But I think under, overcoming that um, that mental hurdle within, within our policy process is going to set us a long way forward to being able to have... Um, Effective understandings of why others are perhaps concerned about some of these, these more obfuscated issues.
1: Thanks. Okay, I'll open this up to the crowd. Uh, I'm just going to ask that standard operating procedure is um, followed here and that you wait for the microphone and please identify yourselves. Having said that, John. <laughs> 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 All right. En route. John Longstedt
0: from George Washington University questions not really closely connected let me summarize what I think I heard and tell me if I heard correctly which is that China would like the place for its map to be at the center table uh, in space policy international space policy discussions but if that happens we should not expect the Chinese to be like us bring the same set of understandings, the same worldview uh, that, that there needs to be a lot of mutual learning if they're going to be an effective participant. if we're going I'm trying to phrase this properly, if the dialogue is going to be productive. For example, you know what's the Chinese reaction to the code of conduct movement? Uh, do they understand what that's about, and how? that plays out as a current high priority uh, among Western states. That's question number one. Question number two, you mentioned, Ben, in your introductory remarks, and then it hasn't been mentioned since, Japan. I mean, is Japan totally irrelevant in Asian multilateral regional space matters? Uh, And they have a comprehensive space capability, They operate intelligence satellites. Uh, They now have a new uh, legal framework that allows them to give high priority to national security, space issues. Uh, They have been active in space debris discussions, Uh, and yet they don't seem to play into discussions of Asian space policy. Uh, Why?
2: I think you had a lot more questions than two there, John. Um, I'll tackle I'll tackle two parts of that. Um, firstly, in terms of the code of conduct, um, I think that the the Chinese position internationally on most initiatives related to space security um, has been one of extreme caution um, during the Bush administration. Um, and I would say for the last 10 to 15 years, um, the Chinese position has very been one that let the Russian government move forward and China stood behind. Um, It's been very interesting with the upcoming group of governmental experts within the the framework of the UN General Assembly um, that the move forward on this were very much pushed by the Russian government with US support and with other elements of support. Uh, And Beijing took a long time to come out in support of the transparency and confidence-building measures concepts. Um, so I think that they are very wary um, of these kind of soft law initiatives. I would say that, in many ways, their position is very similar to that of the Governor of Brazil. The Brazilians hate the Code of Conduct. Um, regardless of its substance, um, Brazil, I think, considers that an initiative that is outside of the UN structure as a country which is an emerging security actor, which is growing, which is developing, which is becoming more important, um, they have most equity to maintain within a formal United Nations system. And I think the Chinese government is of a very similar opinion. It sees that the place where it can maintain most of its equity is within a formal multilateral structure. Um, And I think this idea of fear and this idea of it being um, surprised and finding itself with a whole set of legal contracts which it did not necessarily sign up to in the first place. And the unintended implications are something which concerns Beijing extensively. So, uh, whilst I don't think they're against the concept, I think it is, it is something which they are, they could not be said to be overly in support of. Um, as regards to Japan, um, I think that the, one of the o- other participants in our workshop in Beijing uh, was the, the vice chairman of APSCO, the Asia-Pacific Space Cooperation Organization. Um, and there's certainly been some strategic posturing, I would say, between um, Tokyo and Beijing over the creation of APRSAT, the Japan-backed regional space organization, and APSCO, the Chinese-backed regional space organization. Um, I think, again, we're starting to see space being considered more in kind of also the ASEAN context. So I think Japan does have a role to play um, you point out that it's a new, it's new legal framework for space, which has reinterpreted what exactly, as, as Alana was talking about, what peaceful uses of outer space means um, at the UN General Assembly last year this was highlighted extensively by the North Korean ambassador, who was basically saying, hey guys, we all need to be aware of what the Japanese are doing, look, they're reinterpreting what, um, what peaceful means in this particular context, and specifically relevant for the Asia region. Um, I think given Japan's um, current strait and circumstances and the fact that it always has focused around a pacifist agenda for space, in many of these strategic issues, which are, I think, the current flavour of the month, um, it has not been considered to be as a relevant player. Um, I also think in the Japan context, the potential moves of this government away from high dependence on... United, on the United States, or at least that discussion has been started within Japan, has also somewhat altered the balance. Um, so its relationship with Washington is perhaps not what it, not as strong as it used to be. Therefore, it's not kind of that bulkhead in Asia for the United States. Whereas in terms of the regional context for for Asia, the the India-China dynamic is seeming to be more relevant than, than the North Korea-China-Japan dynamic would be my analysis. So that's not quite an answer to your question. But, um, Just
0: one follow-up comment, don't need the mic for this. Uh, a secure world works with India and China to encourage them to enter the dialogue. Should it be working also with Japan? Uh, because they, as you say, their whole history doesn't make them think strategically in the space sector uh, but won't they have to eventually be
2: part of the regional solution um, I, I think that they do and um, we have certainly looked at working with Japan um, Japan has a whole host of um, I'd say cultural and language challenges in terms of creating effective methods of engagement um, we're very supportive of this new initiative which is taking place in Japan of the creation of a space policy institute and um, I think that that's going to, again, build the kind of the community that we've been talking with in China. Um, that while there are individuals who one can engage with in Japan, that overall holistic- Yeah, two. yeah exactly. Two, exactly um, One of whom happens to be on our board. Um, uh, we've certainly found that there has not been an effective forum where you can put together people who, unfortunately Victoria and I are Japanese, isn't great. Um, create an environment where you can engage in English With people who are actually going to have uh, an effective direction on policy has been very, very difficult. Um, Also, given the highly hierarchical structure of the Japanese government and Japanese um, organizations and industry, that has added an additional level of complication for us in terms of how we engage.
1: You just add on since it was a secure world related question. Um, absolutely, I agree, John. I think Japan needs to be involved. The problem is, is as you pointed out, in 2008. I mean, that's when the space law changed, and I think it still requires a shift in mentality to accept that Japan can use space for non, you know, non-civilian, non-commercial measures. Um, and so, it's difficult to get that. I think it's really it's going to be a big change and so that's part of the problem is getting a recognition within the japanese policy community that they need to be a part of the security discussions they can't just be members of COPUS and think well that's going to cut it we need to really look at overall strategic context because as ben pointed out that that raises a whole host of other issues how they do it outside of the united states um nuclear umbrella etc all right going on In the back can, can i say something oh yeah i'm sorry
3: just really quickly to your first question. Um, I guess China wants into a club, and if it's allowed into the club, how much will it try to change that club? I think no one anywhere knows the answer to that question, including in Beijing. Um, I, I don't. I don't think China has yet had reason to have a a robust debate or discussion of what it wants out of space, where its fundamental interests in space lie, and what type of international governance arrangement for space would best suit China's needs. Because it hasn't been necessary so far. Uh, China's, as I was saying earlier, you know, China has focused on achieving a set of space capabilities. That has been the thrust of how to make policy for space in China. It's how do you best you know, achieve these engineering uh, results? Um, and the kind of bigger picture thinking about what is it all for, what is the end game, what is the real national interest or interests that are served by, by these activities, it Just those questions have not yet presented themselves because... I think a big part of the reason is is that recently budgets have been, uh, are are very uh, generous in China. Um, Until you have to uh, call programs and make decisions about what is gonna be a priority uh, and what isn't, until you have the scarcity of resources that forces you to really um, think about what is important and what isn't, you don't really have a need for that type of of discussion. I think that's changing in China, Um, but but so far, I, I don't think anyone in China has made up their mind on that question. Um, and it's changing too quickly for anyone to have just that, in my opinion.
4: Really quickly on the way that I agree with what you described they want to be members of the club, and I think their view i entitled them to help shape those rules. But the only addendum or, or, or nuance I would add is you, you have to remember that they fundamentally believe that their exclusion from the club is a historical accident that they had a bad couple hundred years. And so it's, it's not, their whole national narrative is, how did we let this happen to us and then reverse it? So it isn't, it's not like, you know, the metaphor isn't crashing someone else's party. They think it was their party and they went out and passed out in the yard and they woke up again and other people <laughs> take it over. <laughs> I'd correct. Yeah, just yeah, yeah my, my
0: question had malice behind it. it? No, you know, those of us those of us, and I include myself, that uh, advocate bringing China into the central discussions, shouldn't expect China to be like us. No. Uh, that there are bad. consequences of doing that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got it. In the back. I just, uh, National mm-hmm.
1: What are the Chinese perceptions of India's space developments? Uh, India's view is very clear. You know, China has always been a threat uh, since the border war with China in 1962. And India's space and nuclear developments have always been an impact response model. China was nuclear in 1964, and then we see a heavy budgeting of the Indian, you know, budgeting for the nuclear and space developments. Um, so, how does China view uh, India's aspirations in nuclear and space? And secondly, um, India still views itself as a regional leader in the Asian regions, and it doesn't want China to hold that. You know, it doesn't want China to in, encroach on that because India still views itself, itself as the leader of the developing nations. So these two, how does China view India's position? Oh, I, I, I want to take this one because I love this one. It's.
4: Um, <laughs> This is, is, I think, one of the funniest geopolitical relationships. I mean, I I go to India a fair amount, and I constantly hear about China, and I go to China, and I never hear about India. And and I I can't tell if it's that Chinese policymakers just really are so focused on the United States and Japan that India comes in a distant third, or if it's some diabolical plot to just insult the Indians. (laughs) Uh, And, I, I, I mean, there are... I mean, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. It does matter, but at least from the way that I interpret the way that Chinese <coughs> policymaking has gone, is it isn't capability-driven, and it isn't threat-driven. It's this generalized desire to acquire modern capabilities. And so the United States and, to some extent, Russia were uh, technological models, right? So they would sort of look at those for guidance about what you ought to be doing. And then to some extent, the Japanese were kind of the insult, right? They kicked things along, right? Which is to say if the Japanese were doing it, then it was really politically difficult for China not to be doing it. Uh, but I don't think that India plays too much in that conversation other than, again, there probably is a certain degree of, if Japan and India are doing it, then certainly China should be able to. I would I would
2: second Jeffrey's point that I... Um Oh, our Indian colleagues always mention China. Our Chinese co- colleagues never, ever, ever mention India. It's not in all my trips to Beijing. I don't think I've, unless there's actually been an Indian person sitting in the room, and even then, the Chinese would go, "Oh, well, that's nice." Anyway, back to um, I just don't think, and I think in terms of uh, India's India's kind of leader is the Group of Seventy Seven and the other kind of regional regional elements, um, China is in the UN system at least. It's a group of one. Um, and I don't think that China is looking to challenge India's leadership of the developing countries. I think China is very much considers itself um, trying to maintain, trying to gain peer status with the old established leaders Russia, China, Europe, you know, Russia, China, Europe, um, the US. That's the list it would like to have been in. Um, if this was 18, 1834, it would have been like, where's the great power box? Where do I sign? Tick. Um, so I don't think it sees itself in those kind of terms. Um, I think also it has always been more focused towards the Japan, Southeast Asia issues and looking towards the US. Um, and I think India for so, for so long, certainly during this Chinese government, um, has been focused on Pakistan issues, has been focused on other issues. Um, and the border war f- between China and India was a lot less important, I think, for China than perhaps many, many other issues. Um, and so I think as India becomes a greater trading partner and if India decides to try and expand its regional influence over East Asia um, as opposed to more kind of South, South Asia region, that dialectic may change, but up to this point I would say it, it's not something which plays large in, in Chinese thinking. Yes.
1: Okay. Uh, Brent? Yeah. Okay, oh, um, c- Mike. Brent MacArthur State
5: Park. Um, I'm curious about uh, China's um, feeling about their responsible behavior toward uh, the community of those that have communication satellites, what they think about the ITU, and what they think about the role they should play in communicating with their neighbors that have satellites that are co-located. Is that an opportunity for a discussion, or not?
3: Oh, yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> no, I think that's really, really... Um, important, <laughs> hugely important. It'll sort of maybe be like a, an indicator of, of what we can expect from Chinese behavior in other multilateral fora that touch on space maybe. Um, but I don't feel qualified to say anything about that issue.
2: Um, I would just add, if one has faith in the ITU, you have a lot more optimism in life than I do. Um, so I just
5: use that as an example. Yes. But it's an international body that... You know, the U.S. is not in charge of, and so if they have this reservation about uh, striking up a conversation, a relationship with us, maybe there's another party, maybe an Intel set or another communication satellite company that's co-located with one of their communication satellites, I can see a relationship developing to be responsible partners and neighbors and sharing uh, conjunction analysis data with each other.
2: And, and I certainly think China is looking to be a responsible partner in many of the as, as much as it can be. I think it, it's made clear statements um, post-2007 um, that it is prepared to, and it would like to, um, continue to support sustainability and, and responsible action in space. Um, I think it now certainly sees itself as having something to lose. And I think that that's been a, 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 big, ch- a big check. It understands the role that's based place within its domestic economy, within its security analyses, and also its, its potential asymmetrical value as, as a strategic force for China in, in potential military conflict in the future. So I think, I think that that is something that's important. Um, I think, however, most international fora have problems. The ITU is uh, opaque, to say the least. Um, the Congress on Disarmament has been stymied for 12 years. The UN General Assembly has l- some declarative value, but little basis for effective negotiation or discussion. The Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space rules out the actual things that we're worried about. Um, so suddenly we get into a, a more interesting game. Now, with China, I think what's going to be really interesting is when we start talking GPS. Um, when we start talking about how Beidou... Um, impacts with Galileo. Um, there, I think those kind of negotiations are going to be something which will, in many ways, set the tone for how we deal with future technical um, problems and, and, and conflicts um, between China and between other other players.
4: I'm just going to admit my own ignorance because communication satellites are, are a little bit field where I don't think. John, I'm looking at you, didn't the Chinese have a satellite that got interfered with? I
0: think so. am, I, am I totally boring? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Are they a member of it the don't. Space to the Data
1: Association?
2: No. So. no. But again, I think this comes back to technical issues. That the Chinese don't feel that their SSA capability is currently up to scratch to be contributing in the international community, that, that they have they have Purple Mountain um, they have some boat Yes. Yeah. They have some boats. Uh, you know, boat-based sensor capability. But when they're looking at the capacities that others have, they don't again feel like they're able to. They feel weak on on SSA, among other issues. So I think that's something that we're we're seeing.
4: Following on the of their satellites, but I
1: don't know what they did about it. Laura. Hi, I'm Go with the Institute for Global Environment and Strategies. You all talked about the need to create and develop that space policy community in China. And um, I'm wondering two things. One, is it premature to talk about the kind of top-down cooperation that NASA would engage in? And is helping develop that community going to help us with the kind of obstacles that we have in the U.S., you know, from those sectors that don't even want the executive to look at China.
4: I mean, I think the answer is um, I think it is premature to imagine serious government-to-government cooperation. As much as I would support and encourage that, um, and my guess about why building a community like that would be helpful is kind of twofold. One is that Having looked at some of the historical incidences where cooperation fell short or didn't materialize, um, there are always these little cultural stories that seem to play a role, and it's hard to know if they're decisive. But it's pretty clear that U.S. and Chinese policymakers don't always understand what they're being told, and that sometimes that matters. Oh, yeah. There were just people who could sort of say, "I realize he nodded yes, but what he said was no," right? Which does happen, um, and. Kind of related to that, um, it's this John I believe, but this observation that John made about if we let the Chinese into the club, we can't they they're still going to bring their interests in. And I I think just having a way to communicate about those kinds of things is going to be necessary to understand how you can develop cooperation. It's not just well we're willing to do this, it's you know, the kinds of things that they actively want and that we actively want, so it actually contributes to some kind of an end. Because um, like lately, I mean, the things that we I don't know, I was fascinated by this effort we've in the 80s talked about you know sending up a Chinese astronaut on a shuttle, um, and the Chinese never talked about that. I and mean, they are just totally uninterested in that. It just hadn't, like, zero appeal to them. And so having a better non-governmental dialogue I think could help avoid spending a lot of time on things like that.
1: Oh, um, yeah.
3: I mean, I don't... I personally can see sort of advantages and disadvantages let's say to the U.S. you know, initiating some sort of substantial technical cooperation with China like tomorrow. Um, there would be, you know, cost and benefits to, to doing that. Um, but I think as we generally, at least here in Washington, as people discuss that possibility, they systematically tend to overlook at least one class of benefits that that would yield, um, a, a sort of opportunity cost of, of not pursuing technical cooperation. And to me, the the biggest sort of missed opportunity or, or the biggest cost of not doing that is, is that you miss out on, on a chance to um, expose a technical community in China to more international ideas, you miss out on an opportunity to learn more about how the Chinese system works. Um, and, and I don't think there is a substitute uh, for actual technical cooperation on a project um, for achieving that. But there are other ways you can learn more about what China wants and what China does. But if you care to establish long-term working relationships, if you want to really establish meaningful channels of communication where people can actually say new things and think new thoughts together or come up with new proposals, I think very few arrangements you could conceive of would, would be as effective as forcing you know, technical personnel from both sides to kind of commit to achieving a goal together, work over long periods of time, share some risks, share some burdens, and share some responsibilities, and make decisions together. Um, so that that's one of the good things that I think comes out of technical cooperation. And it, that's not to say that that is a more important consideration than many of the reasons to not do it. But it's one consideration that we Rarely talk about. Um, it's difficult to measure. It's kind of ambiguous, but it. I think it's probably really important, especially when you're dealing with a country like China that affords you very few opportunities to to learn really about it, um, its system. Um,
2: I would I would add two points to that. Um, one, if we end up cooperating with China on space, um, one of the problems we have in the space community is that we often think that we're a lot more important than we actually are. Um, this is about the Dalai Lama. This is about Taiwan. This is about all of those things that I listed earlier. Um, cooperation by itself as an independent, uh, an independent undertaking with China is never going to happen. Um, whether, as Alana said, all of those kind of benefits can be brought to bear as part of a greater China policy with certain desires and aims of building certain kinds of outcomes is a very different question. Um, And I think where we have clearly seen the value of that and how that can be impacted um, on on other security and strategic areas is the relationship between the U.S. and Russia. Um, There's been a long history of um, in in space and in other issues of overcoming cultural and technical hurdles and working out how we created a working relationship. Um, And now if you look at the relationship between Washington and Moscow, there is a way of doing business. There is an understanding of how this game works. And regardless of political upflows and downflows, there can still be that methodology for a dialogue, which we do not effectively have with Beijing, because nobody really understands where all of the moving parts are. Um, So with Russia, we understand if we do this, this is how that message is being received, in a technical capacity or in a political capacity. Um, And I think space cooperation, as an example... um, has the potential to be that kind of first building block in understanding what that dialogue might be. But the end from a big picture strategic and political perspective is not space cooperation. It's building a stable, long-term, effective dialogue with a government with whom we do not currently have a clear and predictable relationship. With please
0: of which brown with with uh-huh. um, When people see uh, uh, pictures of fake apple stores in Kain um, it adds this perception that the lack of respect for intellectual property is ingrained in China. Um, are there, uh, is there progress on this front? Is there any rethinking of this? Is there any chance of being able to get something restarted uh, on this? I think we're also trying to get them to give
4: up new rules. <coughs> I would say two things about that I mean first is I am not sure that yes there's a lot of progress I think in inculcating um, a legal system that has the predictability features of the West and so there is product and intellectual property but I think that we underestimate the degree to which you know when you live in a developed country that has all of the advantages of technology um, and you can buy everything you want um, and you see yourself as the innovator of that technology, then you can sort of understand this abstract principle that it's gotta be protected for a set period of time so that the people who innovate are protected and rewarded so they can continue this process of innovation. I think if you live in a place where you feel like your goal is to catch up intellectual property just sounds like some other reason that you need to remain dependent on the West. And so, um, you know, particularly when you talk about big state programs like um, space, uh, a lot of times the Chinese experience is, and this is especially true for the communication satellite. They really wanted a communication satellite in the late 70s, early 80s. They went and tried to buy one from the US. We told them no, and so then they had to figure out how to build it themselves. And so I think when you go through that experience a few times, uh, you're not, your default mode isn't to value intellectual property as something that contributes to society so much as to see it as a yet one more barrier to your development. Mm
3: -hmm. Um, I would say, I mean, China is uh, creating things that are like intellectual property rights or intellectual property rights in all kinds of areas, but not for the reasons that I think many people in the U.S. hope it is. Um, I mean, for China, a lot of these sort of reforms that appear to take China in the direction of a market economy or, or something more like what we're familiar with um, they're not undertaken because IPR is like an end in and of itself, or it's somehow inherently good to um, ensure that you know authorship of an invention or, or is credited and that someone should should, should benefit from that. Um, they're they're undertaken selectively and piecemeal in areas where it's convenient and where it suits a broader developmental strategy for China to do that. So in sectors where. Um, there's a, an impression among policymakers that uh, China is capable of engaging in independent innovation, and there would be benefit to protecting innovators in that way and allowing them to reap the benefits of their their work. Um, there are measures being taken to, to protect their intellectual property. That's also true in the defense industry to some extent. But in areas where it doesn't really suit a broader developmental strategy because China doesn't have the, the potential to Innovate itself domestically, um, you know, progress is, or progress or change is going to be a lot, a lot slower. So I think intellectual property is viewed in a very instrumental way. It's just one of many policy measures available uh, to Chinese policymakers um, to achieve other ends. But it's it's not going to be implemented or it, it's not going to be something pursued for its own sake writ large in every area. And I think in a Strategic
1: sector like space, um, you
0: can expect that to be a special leader. Here. Um, Al Milk in AO Media. In the past,
4: I have heard some space ideas coming from China that I haven't heard coming from the mainstream or, in some cases, any stream in, in the US or internationally. And I'm wondering. How um, is the U.S. and the rest of the world reacting? Uh, do they, I mean, just, are some of China's ideas are just dismissed or rejected, or is everything being considered? I mean, one thing that I hadn't heard others talking about was like food possibilities in space. Um, I'm curious,
5: you know, because you, uh, Dr. Lewis had mentioned about how fascinated he was with some of these ideas uh, coming from China. And, I'm just curious what any of you would have to say
0: about that. What? Well, when I they'
4: saying funny or strange things, I, I was really thinking the explanations that they provide. You know, there were. I don't know. I mean, when I look at formal Chinese plans for space, they don't seem unusual to me. They they don't seem um, crazy. And sometimes things that we pick up or interpret Um, you know so for example there's a whole bunch of discussion about how the Chinese said they wanted to land someone on the moon but I've never I can't, I don't see any evidence that anyone of any official capacity has said they want to put someone on the moon Um, so you know there is you know, it's a big place they have their fair share of people who wear tinfoil hats Um, the internet's a crazy place so, you know, you do sometimes see these nutty ideas, but I would say at least since, like, the 60s, my observation is that Chinese have been pretty realistic about what they can accomplish, um, and that their, at least near-term goals, are things that follow up on what the U.S. and Soviet slash Russians did, uh, which, you know, I would think the, I guess I would would describe it as having a permanent presence on on a space station although that's i don't know that's a little bit of i'm taking some liberties what do you think
3: like in general about the, it's the, the like as i understand your example of food is sort of maybe an example of the kind of like space derived product that um you know chinese companies are kind of spinning off or, or something like that is, is there are some be a way people. to
1: feed people <laughs> Is that, I, mean, I thought that was an idea of theirs. you mean like biotech
3: time. related to space there's you know space space yeah I mean it's too early to tell like yeah, that there's an agenda for the, this the, the space labs and the space station um, to, to be facilities at which uh, space science experiments including you know biological experiments can be can be conducted Um there's a whole like, separate class of, of things that you can observe if you go to China, which is kind of nutritional supplements and other products that like, have a connection to space or like, are, you know, come from bees that have like, been sent up to space or, or something like that. Um that to me is, is actually really significant because it shows that the space industrial groups are really responding to the policy directive from the central, go- central government to, to really foster um, what they call it, space sector commercialization. To try and make um, draw as many civilian applications out of the space program as possible, and to try and um, you know make space products that are more relevant to the lives of ordinary uh, people. Uh, so it's interesting. In, in, uh, another set of examples, you know, that are related to space in China, say something about how it's how it's changing.
1: Russia. Marsha Smith, SpacepolicyOnline.com. Alana, I think what I heard you say, you were describing a situation in China where everything is pretty fluid these days. Since 2008, there's been a lot of changes. It's not clear where everything's going to fall. You said there was paralysis there because it's not clear, I guess, who's going to be in charge of what so people don't want to align themselves with different individuals or whatever. And then I think I heard you say that, nonetheless, there's a space policy community emerging there and that there was a unique opportunity to engage with them. But then you said that you thought it might be a fleeting opportunity. And I'm curious as to why you think it might be fleeting.
3: Well, I I don't want to make it sound like there's some sort of uh, imminently closing window to do something really dramatic. That's not exactly what I mean. Um, but but it, along the lines of what, what you were saying, um, There's a group of of individuals that are coming together that will be providing more and more systematic and expertise, or expertise in more systematic and institutionalized ways to the Chinese leadership over the coming years. Or at least that's what we see uh, emerging. Um, There's an opportunity to develop relationships with those people now that may be more difficult um, in the future. There's a, I think, also an opportunity to introduce new international ideas or even proposals for how China, how, how the space policy community might I guess introduce new ideas and, and proposals to this community that would eventually end up uh, you know, representing those views to the leadership. What I have in mind is like concrete proposals for cooperation on, say, like space science missions, or um, even when and how China decides to send taikonauts to the moon. Um, I don't think um, there's a fixed schedule yet for when and how um, China will send anyone to the moon right now. There, there, there's a lot of talk about that, but um, a firm policy decision hasn't been announced. Yet. I think it's, it's likely it hasn't been made because so much is about to happen in the new space program in the coming years. This emerging space policy community is going to have an important voice and recommending how China should go to the moon, um, whether it should really do it alone. It'll also have an important voice in um, debates about how China should utilize uh, the Chinese space station when it's built, how much international involvement there should be. Um, and, and in general, it's a community that will be the primary reservoir of, of specialized knowledge about space and the space sector that the government will turn to or um, when it has important decisions to make. This community right now, I think, is, is not yet you know rigidly formed. I think it's just kind of coming up because, like I said, there aren't too many people who could bridge the sort of technical and policy worlds. So in that sense, there's an opportunity now to build relationships that could have a growing impact in the future. And because so many big decisions are going to be made over the coming years, engaging this community now could have sort of the biggest payoffs if there's, you know, any impact you want to have on those decisions. And I don't mean impact in, like, a sinister way that we should, like, try and manipulate how the Chinese space program evolves. But certainly it's an opportunity to, you know, develop at least a better understanding on both sides and explore the potential for for cooperation or at least minimize, uh, you know, misperceptions and, and hostilities. Um, so, so that's the sense in which I think it's kind of a, a special time right now. Um, and also, there's a generational factor here. There's like a, a kind of a crop of young people that are that are coming up. Um, I mean, this is, this is sort of complicated in the Chinese system, different institutions are different, but um, there are opportunities to engage people right now who are looking like PhD programs or just coming out of them, who will eventually, um, you work within the Chinese space establishment, move up through the ranks, and you know, we'll we'll forever really have different impressions of the United States and the outside world if they've gotten more international exposure um, very early on in their in their career. So I think timing does does matter.
2: And I also think um from, from our perspective working in, in very much the security space security realm, um, what we 've seen what we see extensively in, in the Washington community is that a lot of people turn around and go that 's just stupid," and the conversation ends pretty quickly um, you don 't yet have that in China, I think we 're seeing that grow, and that's something which I think comes a lot from, from non governmental or the quasi governmental bodies here, somewhat in Europe as well. Um, I mean space debris is a very good example that now we can all know we everybody 's got the cell the bombs sticker on their car, space debris bad, okay tick. Um, That in major part was pushed forward by the policy making, the the policy advising community in Europe and the US by really pushing out that message, which was then incorporated into the very public face of US policy. But that took a while for that shift to happen. And I think that that's the kind of thing, and that's the kind of reason why we're very supportive of these kind of policy communities, because when somebody comes to you and goes, oh, we're going to blow up the satellite, how does that sound? Somebody picks up the phone and makes a quiet call to somebody else, and they go, you're out of your mind. Like, bad plan. Oh, great, okay, so somebody come up with somebody, some other option for me here. So I think that, that that is a real key, and I think Alana's completely right. You know, we, we, um, some of the people who involved in our meeting in, in Beijing, one of them was the first person who graduated in China with a PhD in space policy. Um, so we're seeing those people come through, and they're going to move forward in academia and into policy positions in government, um, which are going to be to key at making those kind of determinations.
3: Yes. Yes. Space <laughs> debris. I mean, the, the ASAT test is probably the, the best possible example you could think of. I mean, it counterfactuals are, are, are like a risky proposition, but. I mean, I think you could make a very strong argument that um, had there been a little bit more international um, or, or just a greater exposure among uh, that particular technical community to um, and not just the, the things going on at the UN, but, but to literally just to the international community and to outside observers, the ASAT test would have happened very differently. Um,
1: yeah. Jeffrey, did you want to add anything? No, no, I was just... Right. Well We have time for one, one last question, so. I think
2: he's Hi, I'm from Rice University. Um, yesterday, Mr. Kumar talked about how India sees space as not being an end in and of itself, how it meets some real technological goals, like providing weather data for uh, farmers, or even going to the moon is seen as possibility of getting raw materials for nuclear power. And um, is Khodorkovsky, you talked about how China sees space as being an evolution of technological goals for China. I was wondering what those technological goals were. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that,
3: of course, policymakers and and Chinese leaders see space as, you know, an integral part of a broader development strategy. So they see it as delivering concrete public goods and other concrete benefits for, for development. We have to also be a little bit skeptical of, of these sort of developmental justifications and arguments for, for space. Like if you want to push forward a large scale like science and technology mega project in China, you need to build a coalition um, of people probably to support it. You need to sort <laughs> of and you know, persuade people that it will really deliver a whole range of benefits. Ideally, they will be both civil and military. Then you'll really have the maximum possible range of support. I think that's probably true in every, you know, in every political system. Um, the, the, the better way to think about the developmental impact, I think, of the, the space program is, is to think about just the allocation of scarce resources. You can identify a range of, of developmental needs that, that can be met in various ways, and, and then you can ask yourself, well, what is the most effective Means of achieving those goals. In some cases, it will be investment in space technologies. In other cases, it will be other things. Um, the, the social returns on space spending are like really high in some areas and not very high in others. Like human spaceflight does not really generate direct developmental um, benefits, right? Um, so I think you you can't make too many broad generalizations. But it, it kind of depends on the product. It depends on the technology. Um, it's also rhetorical, and it's kind of used as a strategic argument, and I don't think that's unique to China, right? It's probably in every developing country, and, and
4: in, in, in one way or another, also true here in, in the United States. I would just add that just because it's – I agree it's rhetorical, but that doesn't – in the life of a centrally planned bureaucracy, sometimes rhetoric has a reality, and so um, – you know, when I think about the origins of the manned space flight program, it comes out of a whole series of technological initiatives that were languishing that people in the bureaucracy wanted to do, but China didn't have a lot of money for it, and there wasn't really a wasn't really an advocate for it at the highest levels. And then, you know, Reagan gives the SDI speech in, in nineteen eighty-three and people use that, right? They use that as an excuse to get a letter in Deng Xiaoping's hands that makes a case for Pursuing a wide range of technologies, all of which will be important in the future. One of which is human space flight and so you know it isn't. It isn't like the actual technologies were somehow linked to SDI. It it, it was a it was a you know it's like it was like placing an op-ed right. You needed a good news book You needed an excuse to give Deng Xiaoping the letter and to make this case, and so it's. It's absolutely true that there are all of these interests in these mega projects. Um, and, you know, some succeed and some don't. But I, I do think that what is interesting is when the ones that succeed, I don't think they succeed because a policymaker says, ah, I have discovered a discrete need and I can spend money on this technology and I will satisfy this need. I mean, that's. That, that's maybe how it would work in a textbook, but it's certainly not you know, how it works in China. It's a much more vague, um, we need advanced technologies. Robocop technologies are important. Well, the Americans are doing this. Well, can we do that? Yeah, yeah we can do that. Okay. I mean, it's more that sort of uh, level of analysis. And I think just very quickly,
3: I mean, the sort of developmental agenda that, that, that is relevant to space with is that the space is one way to help build a sophisticated, advanced, modern, scientific, and technological and industrial base for the country. That that capacity can then be put, put toward a variety of different ends, some of which are just economic development in particular areas. But the the big developmental picture that, that I think leaders hold in view is of just building a basic level of of advanced capacity, um, and and that means you don't need to focus on necessarily on the the direct impact of a specific product or not. It's a, it's a really systemic perspective.
4: <laughs> Sorry, I just because I I think that's so right. And one one more thing, which is we always talk about how you know the Chinese are doing something that's asymmetric, and and I think. Is exactly the opposite of the way the Chinese think about it, right? It's not about efficiently allocating to niche capabilities. It's, it's I think they
0: desperately want to be symmetric.
2: And, and I would say to kind of contextualize those comments, I think that's really key. But so when one is developing US policy or, or established space policy, how China is going to take um, a statement when it's trying to create a base level, or if you look at someone in Latin America, Latin America doesn't care about creating a base level of technology in space. They care about disaster management. They care about border control. They care about water and forests. Um, they really don't care about, you know, strategic and possible technology spin-off in, in the long term yet. Um, so when constructing uh, an outside-facing policy, one needs to be very aware of how... Uh, one specific policy may be interpreted very differently um, with key strategic actors in different areas, um, be they in the Asia region, say, India, China, Japan, or in, in the greater global context.
1: Okay, I lied. One last question. Uh, Scott. I'll, I'll
0: be short. Sure. Well, you know, I'll, I'll, you, know, you may, talked about um, uh, what happens if uh, technical experts in, in China had known uh, more about what would happen with the, with the test. And you know where i'm going yes okay yes. there were technical experts who did participate very extensively in the international community so the question was uh it's not that china did not in theory have technical capability of understanding what was going on Absolutely. but that they weren't really listened to or weren't in the, in the system so your view is this something that would just develop and evolve better and so that was a, an aberration that represented um, a particular point in china's development or is that actually a feature where the really smart and capable people are not allowed to travel outside of China but only the irrelevant people are allowed to see people like us?
3: My answer to your A or B question is yes. <laughs> um, no, I mean I think yeah there are there are pockets of, of obviously of expertise on space debris and there are pockets of you know capacity in different areas, but um, at least in as uh, Best we can surmise in relation to the APEC test, um, the right people didn't reach the central leadership, um, and this is a problem that has been recognized. Uh, China has, in some areas, expertise, but even when it does, it's not effectively channeled. Um, so I think they're endeavoring to to address that. Um, I mean, it's also, you know, organizational issues in in China, like entities like the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, are sort of less powerful than a lot of other actors, especially on something like space, um, that combine to to create probably um, obstacles to the flow of information both ways, uh, both to the MFA about the test happening and from people who have a connection to the MFA and represent China at multilateral institutions to the central uh, leadership. But again, um, I think they've taken stock of this situation and are taking measures to, to remedy it. But from the outside perspective, what that suggests to me is really that you need to try to cultivate channels of communication into the chinese space establishment everywhere you can. Um, and you have to try to uh, break out of just the, the familiar channels that are like uh, the international organizations where China already has a presence. So that's sort the value of these sort of workshops that bring in new new um, members of this emerging community such as it is, is really apparent. Every possible inroad is is uh, would yield
4: Benefits, in, in my view, to any area of, of the Chinese space and, and I would, I would say, as best I can tell, the issue is that the General Armaments Department had the people who were responsible for doing the modeling, and that the modeling they did wasn't wrong; it was right. It's just that it, it focused on this engineer-like assessment of the actual increased risk to any particular. Spacecraft rather than the reaction that actual human beings would have, which is this is the worst man made debris of in history. And so, part of the reason that I think that this is a solvable problem is that I think the Chinese leadership felt um, a little bit sandbagged by the advice that it got. Um, and, you know, there's some evidence that in the wake of that, that uh, Various institutions affiliated with the party reached out to academics and other people in China to try to understand why this was such a big deal. Um, But it's also the case that when you have a situation where the only technical expertise to advise on the degree implications of a test is located within the institution that most desperately wants to do the test, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs doesn't have that expertise, there's no. uh, no capacity for anybody in the party to, you know, just pick up the phone and get a second opinion. Um, you know, when you have those narrow stovepipes, I think you run into this as a sort of natural consequence of it. The good news is, again, I think that you know, they have a new procedure for vetting sensitive international tests, which means they're open to data, um, and they seem to have gotten very clever about shooting at ballistic missiles instead of satellites, um, which suggests.
2: If if I could add to that, um, to put that in the U.S. in the U.S. policy development context, um, what's the what I think the international the international reaction to the two thousand and seven attack test massively increased the um, at least the conceptual power of people like the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on these kind of issues, because. The world went mad, and everybody went, oh, my God, somebody find me the foreign ministry. Why did not nobody tell me about this? And they got to go, see, if you listen to us more, wouldn't that be a good plan? Now, from a U.S. perspective, um, what did we do? We went, by the way, let's teach you how to blast a satellite. USA-193, it's a perfect hymn book. Here's steps 1 through 25. If you follow those, it's all going to be fine. Now, from from my interpretation, that had a big impact on the balance of power within places like China, because people went, see, we told you they were doing it anyway. Um, And then suddenly, all of those people who had been fighting that battle and slightly won something by the level of that international condemnation lost a lot. So their credibility was massively impacted by the fact, and you know, a Wikileaks, let's be honest, that didn't help much either. Um, So the combination of, we shut down a spy satellite, why? Well, because we wanted to send a message, A. Be oh wait, and then we got our cables leaked. Oops. I mean, fundamentally, that was a bad way to develop China-facing policy from a U.S. perspective. Um, so I think when you're thinking about what kind of moves one makes towards actors such as China, from a U.S. perspective, it's really important to assess what an international action or a national action is going to have on the balance of power in countries where we're concerned.
3: <laughs> I would strongly agree with Yeah, it's very difficult. Oh. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah. But, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the domestic incidents of all of these international developments, how the impact that they have on the distribution of power within the Chinese space system is really, really interesting. Um, and that's another you know, sort of, I guess, consideration that can be held in view when you try to assess the cost and benefits of any one particular way of engaging China or engaging in international cooperation with China. It'll make some people more powerful and other people less powerful. And in a, in a sense, everything the U.S. does has that effect um, domestically. Re- refracts through Chinese institutions.
2: So on that note, um, thank you very much for coming. Um, please join me in thanking uh, Alana and Jeffrey for some very interesting comments.